0: Good evening. My name is Solima Salas, and tonight we'll be interviewing Lori Burke Phillips. She's a Digital Marketing Coordinator and Wikipedian in Residence at the Children's Museum of Indianapolis. We're going to talk about several interesting projects she's participated in or peer-headed, um, among them here's Code, GLAM, the Wiki Initiative, and the Open Authority Model. So thank you for joining us tonight, and we'll Go ahead and start with a question. So um, museums are currently transitioning between generations of baby boomers, generation X, Y and incoming millennials where not everyone trusts the concept of openness and group collaboration like the Wikipedia project. Our generations transition within a museum? Do you see this perception changing within the institutional culture?
1: There's definitely a change in perception, and I think that's an expectation to be even more open. Um, Millennials are used to growing up in this increasingly connected world, and they expect transparency and openness in all things. So this is like transparency in the tone of cultural institutions um, in their opportunities to engage with museums and incorporate their own voice and in their ability to reuse and remix content that is provided by museums. And I'd say that generally younger generations are so used to putting everything in their lives up on social media for all to see that it seems counterintuitive to them for organizations to hide away this content. You know, what is there to really hide? Um, But millennials tend to to better understand that opening up the conversation and opening up content will really allow more to be done with that information. And so today it's really all about collaboration and younger generations expect museums to be collaborators too. Really, if museums don't, they'll just seem stuffy and out of touch.
0: I agree, and I think that's one of the things sometimes we forget when we're talking about openness and and these new initiatives that that allow the general public to contribute and maybe Mm -hmm. demystify the concept of museums and that big authoritarian attitude that they might have. And I think as generations push other generations out, I I think the mindset will definitely be changing. And we'll Mm -hmm. see a lot more acceptance in fact when that way. And And so then moving on to the open authority model. Generally speaking, museums are conscious of their role as a credible authority where the general public uses the information provided by the institution as true and final. How is this image affected? positively or negatively, by the use of open source content as reference in their research. Will the public trust information that comes from an unknown author, as long as it is validated by the museum?
1: Right. So, you know, early on, ideas like community curation and crowdsourcing may have caused some museum professionals to more strongly defend these traditional views of museum authority. Um, I feel like the public got a bit enthusiastic with statements like the death of the curator Um, This is really totally untrue, the shift towards user generated content really has made the role of the curator and a museum's authority even more important because there's so much information out there that someone needs to sift through it all and um, even better they need to moderate that conversation and kind of be a part of it. So that's what open authority is. I define open authority as the coming together of curatorial expertise with contributions from broad audiences and basically that means that it's not all or nothing. It's not that the museum is necessarily always right or that the cloud is always right. It's that we can make it even better together. And um, I do absolutely believe that there's greater public trust in the interpretation of content when it's the result of open authority, when the community and the museum are all working together. Um, And there's really a lot of nuance when it comes to being open, quote, unquote. Um, Ed Rodley helped frame this better for me when he described it as two things. He um, talks about it being big O open um, in the sense of opening up content by releasing it under Creative Commons licenses, so this is kind of like in the legal sense, and small O open in regards regards to the co-creation of knowledge and opening up dialogue, so that's more of a social sense. And these are two distinct but related things. Um, And beyond that, big O open and small O open can also be described as radical transparency and radical trust which are two terms you may have heard of, but might not have thought about in this way. Um, But radical transparency um, means that organizations are allowing data to be open kind of for the greater good. Um, An example of this is the Cooper Hewitt opening up their API so that the public can do a whole lot more with it um, with their collections data than they really could have on their own. And um, this relates more to open licensing schemes. Um, Radical trust, is more along the lines of the confidence that an organization has with its online community. So that relates more to the co-creation of information. And that's more like working alongside Wikipedians to improve the article content um, relating to topics in a museum's collection. And another part of this is that many don't realize that this comfort level with radical transparency and radical trust really comes from the ideas laid out in the open source software movement in the 90s. Um, The Open source Software movement is really the core influence behind crowdsourcing and online collaborative communities in general, Um, Wikipedia, of course, being a big one, Um, Creative Commons, and then, of course, Open Authority.
0: That's very interesting. Um, And talking about Open Authority models, I noticed that you used the Rischik Museum, the new Mm -hmm. Rischik Studio as another open authority model. I know we haven't talked mm-hmm. about this previously, but I was researching um, and it, it came up and we recently discussed this this application and found it really interesting. How do you think that particular project has or, or is a good example of open authority?
1: Yeah, we're all so excited that the Rice Museum has um, done this in such a big way and been so public and open about you know, so many other museums have just kind of released their content, and then they say, we've released it, and this is cool. But the Museum has really gone above and beyond in saying, please do reuse this and remix it and show us what you're doing with, um, with our information, with our images, with reproductions and, um, you know, digital versions of our artworks. And I, I love that their big picture is of the tattoo on the girl's back. I mean, that's exactly taking content. And reusing it and remixing it, and and having that you know transactional back and forth with the museum. So that's what makes it the open authority is kind of back and forth and building off of each other.
0: I definitely agree. The image of the tattoo, it's truly inspiring. It kind of mm-hmm. wants to, it wants to to provoke you to search for a painting that you can actually do that to yourself. <laughs> right. I know it's it's just a temporary insanity. But I agree with you. It's a great way to encourage engagement from the public with your collections. Also, because your collection is from old masters, you have that great advantage of not having to delve into copyright issues. Right. So it's definitely just such a great advantage. And so moving on to other projects, we can probably come back to that one later on. Um, so I wanted to touch... Um, upon the Glam Wiki project, um, I've, read, I've read that you've been very involved with the Wikipedia and also with the Glam Wiki project, which is about um, galleries, libraries, archives, and museums in Wikipedia. Um, and then my question would be, how can museums be encouraged to participate in this project? Has there been an occasion where an institution has expressed hesitation to participate because of copyright concerns with their images or ideas? And have you seen an increase in museum participation since the
1: GLAMWiki started? Mm -hmm. So, um, in the U.S., really the best way for a museum to connect with the GLAMWiki community is by joining the GLAMWiki U.S. Consortium, and that's at us.glamwiki.org, and you can also find the listserv there, and that's um, the best way to join the conversation with us. and the consortium was really the main result of my year serving as the U.S. Cultural Partnerships Coordinator for the Wikimedia Foundation. Um, and in that role, I went around and kind of served all of the U.S. in um, helping museums connect with Wikipedia and building the infrastructure needed to make that happen. Um, we had so much interest for museums and not enough Wikipedians to really support them. Um, but by 2012, which is the year that I was serving in this role, Um, There were a lot of museum professionals from existing GLAM partnerships who really had become experts in GLAM wiki in their own right. Um, So we were at a point where GLAMs could help GLAMs. It didn't have to be everything funneling to about three of us Wikipedians to solve all the time. Um, And so the consortium is how we bring everyone together to share their experience and support one another. Um, So we have cultural organizations that can sign up as affiliates, um, cultural professionals, you know, individuals. Wikipedians, and then Wikimedia chapters um, all working together. Um, And the consortium site is also a good place for GLAM professionals um, trying to get started. You can go there to look through various projects and options and see what works best for you. Um, So, you had talked about hesitation to participate. Um, In the past, we were doing a lot of convincing and explaining about Creative Commons when we were getting started with all of this. Um, But really, now savvy museums understand that it's a matter of staying relevant, which I said earlier, that's a word that comes up a lot relevant, um, you know, and in tune with user expectations to um, open up your content. So um, the exception, though, which we mentioned earlier, is contemporary art or writings um, or creations where you have to worry about the copyright of the artist or creator to consider. Um, freely releasing content isn't really a blanket solution for every museum. Um, you have to be careful that you don't just broadly open up all your content and then you're getting into worse copyright issues than you would have to begin with. Um, but every museum really should consider if the content that they have um, is actually using extraneous copyright restrictions that really can be listed. And that's often um, a consideration. Um, and if you do, then your content will be more freely dispersed, especially if it's shared with something like Wikipedia, which obviously is so widely seen and used. So, we consider the um, 2012 AAM annual meeting as our watershed moment in Glam-Winke. Um We went in expecting to do a lot of convincing there and explaining why Wikipedia, um, which is what we've been doing in the past, why Wikipedia. And instead, we found that everyone just really wanted to know how. Um, and by then, the fact that so many major organizations had released their content and had created a sort of peer pressure phenomenon, so you had, You know the Brooklyn Museum, the British Museum, um, the National Archives. You know different units within the Smithsonian, all doing this. So they'd kind of been doing our job for us in the way of convincing. So that was good. Um, And we love to quote the archivist of the United States, actually David Serio, who was a huge proponent of ours. And we like to remind folks that they need to know where the people are. And he also likes to say, if Wikipedia is good enough for the Archivist of the United States, it should be good enough for you. <laughs> um, and this and this gives for you know opening up content in general too, not just working with Wikipedia. So I think nowadays it's understood that the current norm is to release content um, into the public domain or Creative Commons. And this perceived value of maintaining copyright, often for image sales, is really overinflated. Um, and then, when it comes to the increase in participation, um, before the GLAM Wiki initiative began to organize, um, the museum wanted to work with Wikipedia. It was really nearly impossible. The Wikipedia community is really set in its ways and can seem rather combative, actually, to all meeting newbies, you know, people new to Wikipedia um, who may make some mistakes. Um, and the GLAM Wiki community does um, a lot of in-person outreach around the world. And this really gives a friendly face to Wikipedia. Um, and we help museums navigate Wikipedia and we'll um, come to a museum professional's defense on Wikipedia when it's necessary. So this sort of, you know, hand-holding in a way really has made a huge difference in the cultural sector's ability to share their content. And has led to a huge increase in participation. Um, we went from a few brave museums who I could count in my hand. Um, so Now we have over fifty museums around the world who host Wikipedians and Residence, and I would say safely over 100 who have carried out a Wikipedia partnership in some capacity.
0: That is truly fascinating. I, I was reading about the project, and I was wondering, Puerto Rico, which is where I live and work, is usually in a fuzzy place um, in terms of are uh, we Latin American, Caribbean, or U.S. territory, which is what we legally are. If if I were in, if I were interested in participating in the Glam Wiki, would I go under the U.S.
1: model? Um, in what was it the topic? Can you say that um, again? Which one?
0: So if I'm working, I work at the museum in Puerto Rico, so our museum. In okay. Rico. Okay. And so if we were interested in participating in the Glam Wiki project, what yeah. because we're you know, we're kind of just in this. Really strange political status right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, would we be considered U.S. for the Glam Wiki project, or would we have to go to another to
1: another force? Yes, that they, is a very good question. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, what would be the primary language that you would be working in? Because even like Slam Wiki partnerships in, say, Mexico City, like have to consider actually which projects, like which Wikipedia project or language they'd be working on. So would you think that they'd be working primarily on English or not?
0: Hmm, good question, because right now we're transitioning <laughs> our website um, to be fully bilingual.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I would say we would aim for bilingual, so English and Spanish, but in reality our main language is Spanish, Mm -hmm. so maybe this would tip the decision-making process that way in terms of having that
1: be the key decision-maker. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's a really interesting conundrum I've never actually been put up against before, but I would probably say that there's more resources right now in the GlamWiki US um, group but there is also a strong contingency down in Mexico City. Is probably the closest, like, of the um, Spanish Wikipedia. Um, okay. So Wikipedia is all separated out by language. So right. the English Wikipedia is clearly the largest, and it's used all over the world. It's not just the U.S. So that's kind of strange. So both Glam Wiki UK, or I'm sorry, Glam UK, you know, Wikimedia UK over in London, obviously, okay. they edit the English Wikipedia as well. So there's all these, like, overlaps. So I would say that probably there's more resources for England with US, but I would probably connect you with um, pro- just because it's the nearest group, Wikimedia Mexico, just to connect with their translation efforts, because they do a lot of translation efforts back and forth between the Spanish Wikipedia and the English Wikipedia.
0: OK, well,
1: well that's something to pursue later on. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, because I think I'm talking about open authority models as we Um, From my experience, we started with the Google Art Project, which is now the the Google Cultural Mm -hmm. Center. Um, And so we have a a, a section of our collections online. So it was very relevant for me when we were speaking about open authority and I was reading about it, just how, how slowly but surely institutions are tapping into, be it baby steps or just full force into that open model, that that's sharing information and seeing how much they can share and how far their reach can can go. Mm-hmm. Truly fascinating in that way. And then, so going on to other projects that you've worked with, another very interesting project that I found and that's also related to the Wikipedia um, site are the QRpedia codes, mm-hmm. which I've found fascinating because we've tried to install QR codes, but it's the curators and the exhibition um, managers and installers—they're still not quite sure how a QR code works, and they just think putting it on is a great thing. But I, I keep telling them you have to have somewhere that QR code is going to land you on. Right. So, so you need to give me a destination so I can give you a QR code that's worthwhile. So the, right. the QRpedia codes are wonderful because they they already push you through to a destination. You just need to identify what you want to do with it. And then that led me into this question. Um, because when I read in an interview you did with Elizabeth Quaglieri, You Mm -hmm. narrate a wonderful anecdote about a father using Curipedia code to learn more about the broad Ripple Park carousel's history. This brought up two questions for me. Do you have an alternative for people who do not have a smartphone to access the information in the Wikipedia article? And two, and I'm talking about in the gallery, and two, can the use or traffic of the Curipedia code can be... quantitatively measured to present results as to how many people use this tool. And this is more thinking about justifying maybe an investment on behalf of the museum into this project and just making it a little bit broader. So mm-hmm. what are your
1: thoughts on this? Um, so when it comes to the statistics, um, the the Wikipedia site does allow the ability to see the stats on the codes. Um, and I just checked yesterday, and we're at 13,000 scans um, with only six codes around the museum um, since 2011. And I had started to say that um, we only do a handful of codes because they're on um, major objects around the museum that are kind of iconic objects that we've written Wikipedia articles to. So that's why we only have a handful. It's not tons of them. Um, Are you hearing me okay now? Yes, I am. Good, okay. Um, We average actually about eight scans a day on some of our most popular codes. People are usually um, surprised by that because it seems like there's such a high barrier (laughs) to, you know, entry to get to these codes um, with just the technical, everything to do to get to them. But people are using them. And sometimes it can be as high as 40 or 50 scans on our really busy days, which is pretty amazing. Um, and so you asked about kind of having a um, QR alternative um, in our exhibits, um, and having something like a handout or an on-site digital screen. Those are kind of the two other like alternatives to the information that the QR PDA code might go to. Um, it just doesn't really make sense for the design of that exhibit. But that's um, really a lot to do with the fact that we've added QR codes to long time existing exhibits. Um, but that's not to say that we wouldn't consider that option for future exhibits. Um, okay. But really the most important thing is that um, the levels of information that are provided um, for those who wish to know more. So um, being a children's museum, we have very strict word limits on our labels. So you know, we can only do like 25 or 50 words on a label. That's not a lot of information to share. Um, but, you know, family learning is so important to us. That's our mission is family learning. So having the ability to, you know, scan the code and um, just like I described with the, the dad with the telling the story about the carousel to his daughter, um, you know, having the ability to scan the code and read all of that information and um, share it with your family and share your own memories, that's a big part of our mission. Um, and then a big part of it also is the fact that um, PDA codes you know, detects the language in your phone and go directly to the Wikipedia article in that language. That's the really unique part of QRpedia and really has huge implications for levels of accessibility in exhibits. And at the Children's Museum, that multilingual um, functionality isn't really as um, impactful or important. We just don't have tons of um, other languages coming through other than, of course, we do have a lot of Spanish speakers. But the really more important part for us is just that deeper level of learning um, and being able to scan the code. Um, And really, that's the justification, too, that kind of answers your justification question.
0: (laughs) Definitely. I read the article, the Carousel's article on Wikipedia, and it really gives you such a deeper understanding. I have never, regretfully, I have never visited the Children's Museum, but it really gives me a visual of, of, of the history of that object and how prominent it has to be in terms of a protagonist within your collection. So definitely, I really need to congratulate you because it really is an amazing
1: job. Oh, thank you. Actually, it's funny that you mentioned that article. The rest of our Wikipedia articles are definitely not that extensive, but that was a, a very special project where we knew that we wanted that article to to be very expansive and we knew there was a lot of content it it started out actually as a stub which means that it had just like a few sentences or a, a paragraph on it um i reached out to a known featured article writer within wikipedia now featured articles are if you look up in the top right corner of any wikipedia article or or not any because there's not very many that have it but if you see a bronze star in the upper right hand corner that means it's featured and there's only 0.01 percent of wikipedia articles that are featured they go through a really rigorous process and they can lose featured um, status too so um, you have to keep them you know well (laughs) edited Um, so she this wikipedian came and met with our curators um, and They gathered every definitive source on our carousel that exists, and it is all in Wikipedia now, um, expertly written, um, expertly vetted by the community. And our curators now say it is the definitive source on the carousel that exists in the world. They say that they go to Wikipedia to double-check back um, on our carousel. So we're very proud of that article. That is
0: actually amazing. The fact that you have said that a curator refers to Wikipedia that really <laughs> is set, it sets the standard and it sets the mood for what's to come in the future mm-hmm. and why it's so important for open source content to actually be as as loyal to the fact as possible. And in a way, maybe museums do have a responsibility to participate and make sure that that content is as, as real as we can make it so that these references, opportunities Mm -hmm. do become the standard, and and in a very good way. That is an amazing anecdote. Thank you for sharing. Um, You're you're welcome. welcome. So going on to um, a few questions um, I received from colleagues. Um, Mm -hmm. Rachel Pearson would like to know two things. I'll start with the first one. Mm -hmm. She asked... She would like to know, do you think the stereotypes of Wikipedia are changing as institutions become involved in their own pages? And Do you see Wikipedia becoming a more widely accepted scholarly resource in the future?
1: Um, So for those who get involved in Wikipedia, um Really, they quickly see that Wikipedia is not this wild west of unreliable editing, um, which I think is probably the first perception that people have or misconception. Um, But it's actually quite the opposite because Wikipedians patrol the recent changes or recent edits um, so closely that they can actually get defensive um, and end up being rude (laughs) in the process. So, you know, well-meaning, you know, as I mentioned earlier, newbies come in and make an edit. Um, that might be wrong, but well intentioned, um, and we they'll be come bitey. So they'll like bite at them and be like, "You did something wrong," and kind of slap a tag on their edit and not really talk through it with them and not really be very personable. So we there's literally a policy in Wikipedia called "Don't bite the newbies" because mm-hmm. it happens so much. Um, so that it's actually the opposite. And so most of the time, if a cultural professional or, or anyone goes and tries Wikipedia, they see that, whoa, it's not that any old person can come and make all these crazy edits and make Wikipedia be wrong. It's actually the opposite. Um, Wikipedians are becoming really bitey because they're trying to keep it from being um, inaccurate. Um, And so this is really the new stereotype, really, um, or might become the new stereotype. And that's the stereotype, too. Wikipedia has some crabby community members just like any other online community, um, but it also has a whole lot of helpful people who understand that you're there editing in good faith. So um, my colleague um, and friend, Sarah Sturch, who's um, known for her work with Wikipedia and the gender gap um, in trying to get more women involved in Wikipedia, um, she actually developed a new little home within Wikipedia, it's a wiki project, and it's called the Tea House. Um, and it's a really beautifully designed space within Wikipedia. And you can find it um, in the Wikipedia search box by just typing WP colon keyhouse. Um, and it's this little welcoming spot um, that you can go and ask questions. And they can seem like the stupidest question on the planet. And friendly people will answer them. Um, and I think that that's made huge strides in kind of combating this stereotype. Um, just really quickly to answer the scholarly resource question, it's one we actually get a lot. but it's, really easy to answer because Wikipedia is really not trying to be a scholarly source or a scholarly resource. Um, Wikipedia is an encyclopedia, so it's therefore, you know, tertiary and it, it is and always will be a starting point for research um, to, you know, guide people to the scholarly sources. But the question really is, will Wikipedia become accepted as a neutral resource? Um, you know, people always see that it, think that it's like unreliable. But really, Wikipedia's main goal is to be neutral. And really, it does overall maintain that neutrality, Keep um, and nail. I mean, that's the main goal of the community. And I personally feel that they do a really good job of it.
0: That's true. I, mean, um, I have used Wikipedia as a reference. And they do a really good job of presenting multiple points of view on any mm-hmm. topic, um, trying to keep that neutrality, trying to keep that objectivity. To right. make it a reliable source, I, I have seen that coming through. Sure. Um, so, and Rachel also wanted to know: you've said that you do not feel that QR codes are the final solution for museums in connecting visitors to deeper levels of engagement. Where do you see the next step in this development, and do you think this will be complete complementary to the QRpedia project?
1: So. Really, QR codes and I feel like QRpedia are a great resource for now, and I think they'll continue to be, But um, and I'm not necessarily an expert on things coming down the line, but thankfully, I am on the advisory panel for the New Media Consortium's advice, um, Horizon Report, <laughs> so I see what other people are talking about, and I know that two of the things that people are talking about a lot more um, and coming down the line are um, augmented, augmented reality a lot and location-based apps, and those really... Um, are two things that are pretty well known nowadays. I mean, there's Foursquare, there's Yelp, the Yelp Monocle is augmented reality. People often are using location-based apps and augmented reality without even really knowing it. Um, But museums are really just starting to tap into the potential of both of those um, to access deeper levels of information, um, both with augmented reality, you know, lifting your phone up and kind of seeing what pops up, or location-based where you're geolocated and something pops up on your screen right where you're at. so those are definitely coming down the line. I think we've just really hit the tip of the iceberg with that. But the reason that I think QR will continue, I think, to stay relevant um, is that it's really not always best to move on to that next coolest thing um, because you have to really consider the lowest common denominator of your visitors um, and go with what your visitors are comfortable using. You know? So you can't take away the wall label or the handout <laughs> you know, or the QR code. If that's what people are using to get to the information, um, so you're not you don't want to skip all of that, and then people can't access it. So that's what's most important in museums is you know getting people to access that information.
0: Well, that's actually a very interesting concept. I I have felt sometimes that QR codes are a fad that it, it's coming and it's cool to have, but then maybe down the road something better will come along. And now that right. like you mentioned the location app, um, I recently visited the Museum of London, and they have mm-hmm. a fantastic location app where they have been able to merge when you're visiting the city of London with images from their collection and documenting and creating these, these sites within London. So you don't have to be in the museum. You can go around London. And with that app, you can actually have a self-guided tour of the city of London and all of it. That's awesome. It it is fantastic. I can actually email you a link later on. So, sorry, it's just random things that come up. No,
1: that's a great example of, you know, kind of taking your collection and making it, you know, relevant to where the people are. You know, literally putting it where the people are. So I think that's a great example.
0: No, definitely. Actually, we've talked at the museum, we've talked about um, doing guided tours using GPS on the phone. Mm -hmm. But because it's such an old building, the walls are so thick, the signal is not strong. That's actually not something feasible for us. So yeah, the technology goes forward, but maybe the reality is not quite up to what the technology needs. That's another lowest
1: common denominator you have to think about is your museum's lowest common denominator. Exactly. I mean, you have to work with
0: what you have and, and what works and what, what doesn't. Um, and so another question was from Jennifer Ferrin, and she wanted to know um, about which factors led you into focusing your research on the potentials of Wikipedia for cultural institutions.
1: I really love this question because I was actually exactly where you guys all are as Museum Studies graduate students when I got started in Wikipedia. Um, And it was for a collections care and management course. And we were actually tasked with figuring out um, as a class if Wikipedia could be used as the collections management system of the future. right? Um, and this was before the GLAMWiki initiative had gotten started and it was before the Campus the Ambassador program was started with Wikipedia and Campus the Ambassador are Wikipedians who help professors um, implement assignments in their classes, so we didn't have any of this help. We were completely on our own and we found out that Wikipedia is not a great CMS, <laughs> but, um, but it did inspire me to want to help museums get their content into Wikipedia. And um, my background is in um, history education. And I had always wondered, um, as a history undergrad, how the digital world is, was going to impact, you know, how we research and interpret our culture in the future. You know, we're not going to have these tangible letters and photos and things. Um, and so it dawned on me that Wikipedia's revision history, you know, you can always, any wiki, That's the nature of a wiki, you can go and see every edit um, and see every revision that's ever been made. Um, and so you can see how the interpretation of a topic ebbs and flows over time. So it's not lost. So this digital you know, shift in thinking is all documented. And so I was really fascinated by that. And um, luckily for me, at the same time, another history student was writing his thesis on the same topic on the other side of the world in Sydney. Um, and his name is Liam Wyatt. And he had just started this fledgling international group of Wikipedians. Um, who were just starting to chat about and were interested in doing something more to help museums work with Wikipedia. And he happened to find me on Twitter. And we've been close friends ever since and helping to lead and coordinate the Wiki Initiative. So that's where it all started. That is fascinating. And that actually
0: reminds me of something I read in your blog about digital humanities. I had mm-hmm. not heard of that term. And it really sparked of deep interest cuz my background is in anthropology. Now, mm-hmm. I it's just the study of how technology is affecting how we interact with each other. And that's on an individual level but also from the institutional level from museums which have this mission to educate and promote knowledge about in specific collections be it plants, be it art, be it um, bones, whatever. Um, and it's it's very interesting how how technology is helping to actually transcend geographical barriers. Like you said right now, you started this dialogue with this person in Sydney, Australia. Like That's mm-hmm. completely on the other side of the world. So I think technology is actually bringing us forward so much. It's just we have to like you said, keep a rein on it. So as long as we are willing to input and we don't have to complain later on
1: when, when things get out of control. Yeah. <laughs> right, and you know, um, back when I was interested in all the digital history stuff, I, I don't know the whole history of the term um, um, digital humanities. Um, it might have started back then, but it, I didn't um, discover that term either until a few years ago. And, I kept trying to find my, my place kind of in the academic world. Like I knew I had all these ideas in my head and I just didn't know where other people were talking about them, what are they called, you know? And, um, and I just want to encourage other you know, grad students, I am very recently uh, um, graduated, so I was just where you guys were, <laughs> you know, that to keep looking and trying to find that community that's thinking about that thing that you're trying to figure out, because it's definitely out there. Um, and I'm I'm not a techie, techie person, but I happen to just be interested in things related to, you know, some of the museum tech world. And so finding the digital humanities folks, I was just like, these are my people, you know, like, <laughs> they're, they, yeah, I don't have to know how to code to be able to talk about these things with these people. So um, it's very true that, you know, as we're moving forward, we kind of solve our own problems. <laughs>
0: I think, I think that's the best way to end this interview. So Did you have any closing remarks you would like to share?
1: No, I think that all the questions are really well covered. Thank you very much.
0: No, thank you for your time. I really appreciate your giving me this time to talk with us and to share with us your expertise and your experience. And really just congratulate you on a great, great contribution. To what museums are doing right now and kind of just opening doors on how we can actually contribute to further our mission. So thank you so very much. Thank and you so much. Oh, it really has been a pleasure.